In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. The opening of John's Gospel is a profound statement about the mystery of the Holy Trinity, the highest mystery of the Christian faith. St. Thomas Aquinas says, quote, While the other evangelists treat principally of the mysteries of the humanity of Christ, John, especially and above all, makes known the divinity of Christ in his gospel. St. Thomas gives an explanation for this. Since secrets are revealed to one's most intimate, fr- most intimate friends, Jesus confided the secrets of his divinity to John, quote, the disciple whom Jesus loved, end quote. My lecture tonight has a narrow focus. I want to explain why the Son of God is called the Word in John's prologue and how that name helps manifest the eternal generation of the Son from the Father. The thesis of my lecture is that understanding the procession of the interior Word in the human soul is key to understanding the generation of the eternal Word revealed in the prologue to John. This is also the view of St. Thomas Aquinas. The scriptural basis for this interpretation can be traced back to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him Male and female, he created them. End quote. Now, St. Thomas interprets this text to refer not only to man's rational nature as an image of the very essence of God, but also as an image of the distinction of persons by the interior processions of word and love in the human soul. Indeed, the use of the plural pronouns in the biblical text, let us make man in our image, suggests that an image of the trinity of persons, not just the divine nature, is found in man. And since man is distinguished from the beasts by his rational soul, it is within the soul that one finds the image of the trinity. St. Thomas says that, quote, God himself placed in man a spiritual image of himself, end quote. Now, my interpretation of John's prologue, as you may have guessed, is heavily influenced by St. Thomas's Trinitarian theology, especially his account of the interior word, and I will be drawing upon his commentary on the Gospel of John. My lecture has three parts. In the first part, I will briefly discuss the context of John's Gospel, highlighting places in the Old Testament that seem to refer to the Son as the word or as wisdom which is sometimes used as another name for the word. In the second part, I will examine the meaning of the term word, focusing especially on the interior word in the human soul, which functions as a creaturely image or likeness of the eternal word. In the third part, I will show how the meaning of the term word helps manifest the eternal word in the prologue to John. In particular, I will show how the procession of the interior word in the human soul, helps manifest the Father's generation of the Son, and also helps manifest the relation of the eternal word to creatures 
that is intended by the phrase, through whom all things were made. So part one, word and wisdom in the Old Testament. If our aim is to understand the divine word revealed in the prologue to John, why bother looking at the Old Testament? I think it's important to see that a careful reading of the Old Testament leads us to anticipate the revelation of the word in the Gospel of John. What I mean is that the Old Testament indicates that the Son proceeds from the Father by way of an intellectual emanation as word or wisdom. Indeed, this is the principal way in which the Old Testament reveals the second person of the Trinity. Nonetheless, as we will see, the revelation of the mystery of the Trinity in the Old Testament is to some degree hidden or obscured and presents some textual difficulties or puzzles. With that said, let us take a look at a few passages in the Old Testament, beginning at the beginning with the book of Genesis. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, it's commonly recognized that the beginning of John parallels the opening of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But there is this difference. While Genesis begins with the creation of the world, the Gospel of John begins prior to that beginning. It reaches back to eternity to reveal the inner life of God himself before the creation of the world. But the prologue also testifies to the role of the word in the original creation. Quote, he was in the beginning with God, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Looking back on Genesis, we can see the role of the word in the original creation story. God said, let there be light, and there was light. This pattern is repeated seven more times in the creation story. God said, let there be a firmament, a firmament, and so on. By revealing that all things are made through some kind of divine speech, Genesis anticipates the revelation of the word through whom all things were made. The anticipation of the divine word is then made more explicit elsewhere in the Old Testament. And this is just one example. Psalm 33, 6 says, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Now, the opening of the prologue of John parallels the opening of Genesis in another way, by providing the, the setting for John 1.14, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Just as all things were made through the word in the beginning, so the word assumes a human nature to initiate a new life of grace. Genesis narrates the original creation story, and John narrates the new creation. The incarnate word is the principle of the restoration and elevation of the race of Adam through a new life of grace. We can also, of course, recognize common themes in both texts, such as light and darkness, which feature prominently in Genesis and in the prologue to John. Time does not permit me to discuss all of the old passages that anticipate the divine word in John's gospel, but I do want to look at a couple of passages from the wisdom literature that present a personified wisdom that has divine qualities, proceeds from God himself, 
and is present with God before the creation of the world. The first passage I'm going to look at is from the Wisdom of Solomon, and the second is going to be from Proverbs. And it's on your handout if you want to look at it, but I'm going to try to read it slowly. So the Wisdom of Solomon. One of the richest passages is found in chapter 7 of the Wisdom of Solomon. There Solomon prays to God, crediting him with, that is crediting Solomon with, knowledge of the universe. The structure of the world, the elements, the motions of the heavens, animals, plants, men, human crafts and skill. That's in verses 15 to 20. What's key there is that he credits God for doing that. Now starting in verse 21, Solomon begins calling God by the name of wisdom. Here I quote. So this is starting at verse 21 of the wisdom of Solomon. Quote, I learned both what is secret and what is manifest. For wisdom, the fashioner of all things, taught me. I'm jumping a little bit here, but for wisdom is more mobile than any motion. Because of her, her pureness, she pervades and penetrates all things. For she is a breath of the power of God and a pure emanation of the glory of the Almighty. Therefore, nothing defiled gains entrance into her. For she is a reflection of eternal light, a spotless mirror of the working of God, and an image of his goodness. That the, re- that the wisdom revealed in this passage is the Son of God seems pretty clear from Paul's letter to the Colossians, where the Son is named, quote, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That's Colossians 1.15. Now, what is most interesting for our purposes is noticing that wisdom is identified as God earlier in the chapter. That's how it starts out but later is described as something that proceeds from God. Wisdom is a breath of God, a pure emanation of the Almighty, a reflection of eternal light, a spotless mirror, and an image. The text implies that wisdom both is God and is from God. In other words, wisdom is God from God. In fact, this passage from the book of wisdom is the origin of the, of the phrase in the Nicene Creed, God from God, light from light. The latter half of the phrase is taken from the description of wisdom as, quote, a reflection of eternal light. Wisdom is nothing other than light from light. The key takeaway is that the Son proceeds from the Father as some sort of intellectual emanation, a wisdom that comes forth from God and is the image and likeness of the Father. Again, we can see that the Old Testament anticipates the revelation of the Word in John. Indeed, two chapters later in the Book of Wisdom, Wisdom of Solomon again, we see that wisdom is also called the Word. Here I'm quoting, this is uh, wisdom chapter 9, verses 1 to 2. Quote, O God of my fathers and Lord of mercy, who has made all things by thy word, and by thy wisdom has formed man to have dominion over the creatures thou hast made. So 
That's the wisdom text. Now I'm going to turn to Proverbs. So the other text in the wisdom literature I will touch on is a passage from Proverbs chapter 8, verses 22 to 31. Now I think the freshmen have actually read this text. I don't know if they've read the wisdom of Solomon yet. But in, in that chapter, verses 22 to 31, we see a personified wisdom describing herself in language that seems to refer to the procession of the divine word. And here I quote, again, this is Proverbs 8, 22 to 31. The, the Lord created me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago I was set up, at the first, before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth with its fields, or the first of the dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the, foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the sons of men. Now in this passage, we see a personified wisdom as a companion of God, present with him before the creation of the world, who seems to be a helpmate or co-worker in the act of creation. I beside him, like a master workman. Again, this anticipates the word through whom all, th all things were made. Wisdom is also described as something brought forth, when there were no depths, I was brought forth. Before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. This description is consistent with the divine word as an intellectual emanation proceeding from the Father before the creation of the world. Now this description is confusing, however, insofar as wisdom is also said to be created. The Lord created me at the beginning of his work, suggests that the wisdom which serves as a companion to the Lord in creating the world is a creature, not the second person of the Trinity identified in the prologue to John's Gospel. Indeed, this scriptural passage from Proverbs has a long history. It was in many ways the focus of the Arian controversy, with Arius and his contemporaries arguing that this passage refers to the Son of God, but that the Son was his first creature, and therefore not equal to the Father. And on the other hand, St. Athanasius arguing that this passage should be interpreted in another way, with greater subtlety and in a manner consistent with the divinity of the word revealed in the Gospel of John. Now the focus of this paper is not to address the interpretive difficulties raised by references to the personified wisdom that proceeds from God and is God. And we can maybe, I'd be happy to talk about that in the discussion period. 
Now, besides the difficulty of understanding why wisdom is said to be created, one might also wonder why wisdom is personified as a woman, which might seem problematic if wisdom is the son of God. Now, I think these difficulties can be addressed, but the, maybe the more fundamental point they drive home is that the revelation of the divine word is revealed in the Old Testament in a manner that is hidden and obscure and confused with the likenesses of creatures. It is only after Christ, after the revelation of the word incarnate, that we can look back and clearly recognize the Trinity in the Old Testament. This is the meaning of the last line of the prologue. Quote, this is John 1.18. No one has ever seen God. The only Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has made him known. Part two, the meaning of the term word. Having seen how the Old Testament anticipates the divine word, let me now turn to the second part of my paper, which is largely a philosophical explanation of the meaning of the term word. This will prepare us to see how the interior word in the human soul can reveal something about the divine word at the beginning of John's gospel. Now, there are five things I want to note about the meaning of the term word. First, word most properly names a concept of the mind, not a vocal word. Two, a word is something produced or brought forth by the mind to express what it knows. Three, a true word names the perfect expression of the knowing mind and the thing understood. Four, a word completes the act of understanding by manifesting or representing the thing understood. And five, the interior word is also a name for the artist's preconception of something to be made, the form or exemplar of his artistic production. So, first one, word names a concept of the mind. The word in the prologue to John's Gospel Logos in the original Greek and verbum in the Latin Vulgate is not a vocal word, but an interior word or a concept of the mind. Now, St. Thomas argues that the human word, so thinking now just about the word among human things, the human word has three proper meanings. By, by proper, he means non-metaphorical meanings. The interior word or concept of the mind, the vocal word, and the image the imagined sound of the vocal word in the imagination. Even though the vocal word is what is most commonly and manifestly called a word, St. Thomas insists that the name word is said first and principally of the interior word of the mind, because the vocal word is only said to be a word because of its signification, not because of the particular sound that is made. The sound by itself without the signification, is not even truly said to be a word. But the source of the signification is the concept of the mind. That's the source of that vocal word. Where does the signification come from? The concept. So the most proper meaning of word is the concept of the mind, which is also called the interior word, the word of the mind, and word of the heart. The word of the heart is a 
a phrase he gets from St. Augustine, but I think St. Augustine finally gets it from Scripture. You talk about the fool says in his heart, there is no God. St. Thomas bases his argument for the priority of the interior word in a passage from Aristotle's On Interpretation, where Aristotle says that vocal sounds are signs or symbols of things in the soul, which are the same for all men, and that these in turn are likenesses of things outside the soul. For Aristotle, vocal sounds only signify external things indirectly through the medium of the concepts of the mind. Moreover, since vocal signs are only significant by convention, and because their signification depends upon the likenesses in the soul, which are natural signs, because they are the same for all men, it is the concepts in the mind that are most properly called words, and they're more than, that is, the exterior sounds. One can perhaps also infer that for Aristotle, the interior logos is prior to the exterior logos from a statement that he makes in the posterior analytics where he says, quote, demonstration is concerned not with the external logos, but with the logos in the soul. Now in the Coghlan translation, I think logos is translated as account. So, but it's, it's the, the same word in Greek as in John's Gospel, it's logos. For Aristotle then, the true logos is the logos in the soul. We see something similar, by the way, in Plato, who indicates that the logos in the soul is the true, what he calls the true and living logos, having a far greater claim to the name than the written or the vocal word. It's in Plato's Phaedrus, both Socrates and Phaedrus agree together that the written word is merely an image and reminder of what's described as the living and insoled logos in the mind of the man who knows. Because only the logos in the soul is accompanied by knowledge. Now, the idea of an interior word might seem strange. Probably does seem strange to many of you. We do not usually call the concept in the mind a word in common English usage. I think it, it is sometimes used that way, but normally we're not used to that kind of speech. You know, maybe that's because of the decline of our language. But at any rate, I think it's pretty rare to think about it that way. That there is an interior word which is more properly said to be a word than the exterior vocal sound is easier to see from the Greek word logos, the original language of John's gospel. Logos has a very broad range of meanings from vocal word, a concept or notion in the mind, a statement, a speech, an argument. The word logos also has a very rich tradition in Greek philosophy and more often refers to the interior word than the exterior vocal sound and sometimes refers even to a cosmic principle of intelligibility that transcends individual men. You find that in the, the fragments, for instance, of Heraclitus. All right, so that's the first feature, that it's interior. It's the interior word in the mind. Second, word names, names something formed or expressed. Granted there is an interior word or logos in the mind, one might wonder how it is distinct from other things found in the soul. 
According to St. Thomas, a word is something formed or expressed by the intellect through its operation. It is a kind of product or terminus of the intellect's operation. Now, to understand what this means, it helps to see that there is a twofold operation in the act of human understanding. The power of the intellect first comes to know something by being passive and receptive, by being impressed or informed by some intelligible object. Aristotle calls this the intelligible form, and St. Thomas calls it the intelligible species. I mean, the form actually could be transited species, but typically in Aristotle the word form is used, although maybe Coughlin uses species. Um, but intelligible form, intelligible, intelligible species, it's the thing received or impressed on the soul. Like the power of sensation, the intellect is made to be an act by receiving a form or species. The power of sensation receives a sensible form or species. The intellect receives an intelligible form or species. The sophomores, I don't think you're quite there yet, but it's coming soon in the Dianima. Now, once the intellect has been informed by the intelligible species, it expresses what it knows by forming a concept. That's the interior word or logos in the soul. The logos in the soul is almost always something complex, whether it be a definition, a statement, or an argument. So even simple names like man or dog signify a complex word or logos in the soul, namely the definition of man or dog, respectively. As both Aristotle and St. Thomas maintain, the logos in the soul signified by a name is a definition. But as we know, a definition is composed of parts, namely a genus and a difference, or at least in the, the easy case of definition. Sometimes there are harder things to define where you have to give a fuller account that maybe doesn't draw properly on a genus and a difference, but something that kind of approximates it. The, compo the composite character of the logos and the soul is one way of seeing why the interior word in the human soul is something that is formed by the mind, something that the mind actively produces or brings forth. Another indication that the mind actively forms and produces a definition is by reflecting on the discursive process involved in forming a definition. St. Thomas talks about the need for the mind to reason things out when it forms a concept of something simple like a man or a stone. Or you can list a long list of, you know, as you go through the program, you're going to define all sorts of things. Nature, motion, the soul, happiness, virtue, place, time. And that's just the philosophy tutorial. But, um, so the human mind, in other words, does not move all at once to a complete expression of what it knows but does so by moving from a more generic and confused expression to one that is more specific and distinct. It is common experience that the mind expresses its intellectual impressions in different ways and moves from less perfect expressions to more perfect expressions, which finally is a movement from potency to act in, you know, with the goal of a more perfect expression. 
One can form various concepts that express the intelligible form of species of man that is impressed upon the mind. Substance, to start. Animal. Featherless biped. Rational animal. Of course, most of these concepts do not adequately capture or express what a man is, which is why the process of formulating a definition takes time and entails moving from one thing to another. Although the what it is of something might be simple in itself, the definition is not. And although receiving the intelligible impression of something simple gives us some, gives us some sort of knowledge of it, to understand what it is, the mind needs to think it out, which entails effort and struggle to express what it knows. Third feature, word names something perfect. Now the discursive character of human reason and speech, which we just talked about, might lead one to wonder whether the formation of an interior word is bound up with a distinctively human form of knowing, one that necessarily entails some Im something imperfect or defective, or potency, for instance. This is an important consideration for theology because it raises the question of whether the name word can be truly and properly predicated of God or whether word is at best a mere metaphor, the way that, say, lion and rock are used of God in Scripture. Now, St. Thomas anticipates this difficulty. He argues that only the perfect or complete expression of what the intellect knows has the full account or ratio of word. And here I'm quoting from St. Thomas. As long as the intellect, by reasoning, casts about this way and that, the formation is not yet complete. It is only when it has conceived the notion of the thing perfectly that for the first time it has the notion of the complete thing and a word. Thus in our mind there is both, both thinking, cogitatio, meaning the discourse involved in an inquiry, and a word which is formed according to a perfect contemplation of the truth. End quote. So until the intellect forms a perfect expression, the thing formed is not truly said to be a word. This also fits with Aristotle's account of the interior word or logos in the soul. If the name man, that is the ex external conventional sign, if that sign is a sign of the definition of the soul that is shared in common by all men, regardless of the language they speak, the interior logos signified by the name man must be a true definition, for instance, rational animal, not a half-formed definition such as featherless biped. I mean, it kind of works, but there's something missing in that definition. And of course, there's the, you know, the joke, you know, uh, the refutation of Plato, because you know, Plato, at least by reputation, they tried to define things by division, and you know, you, that can lead you to a definition like featherless biped, so someone took a chicken, plucked all the feathers off, and threw it over the walls of Plato's academy and said, there's Plato's man. <laughs> so, so it has a flaw, that definition. 
Since the perfect expression is a true word, St. Thomas insists that word is, quote, predicated properly of God because it is entirely free from matter, corporeity, and all defects. And such, and such things are properly predicated of God, such as knowledge and the known, understanding and the understood, end quote. Next feature, word manifests or represents the thing understood. But one might ask, why is expressing a word or concept necessary to complete our knowledge? Why is it insufficient for the intellect to receive the intelligible form passively? What is the importance of the mind expressing what it knows? The answer is that the expression of an interior word is how the intellect relates what it knows to the things outside the mind, which are the ultimate objects of knowledge. It is precisely in the word that the intellect, quote, sees the nature of the thing understood. That's a phrase from St. Thomas. So it's, it's in the word that it sees the nature of the thing understood. And that's finally because the word represents or manifests to us the thing understood. Knowledge begins in the senses because the natures in things are intelligible, and that intelligibility is present in potency in their sensible forms and in the sensible images or phantasms formed by the imagination. The initial motion of the mind is from things outside the mind and results in an impression. But since the things known or understood are outside the mind, because the mind doesn't simply know its own ideas or its own forms, the mind needs to turn back to the things out, outside the mind to go out to them. This is where the concept or interior word comes in. It represents or manifests the thing under, understood precisely as something outside the mind. This is why St. Thomas will sometimes refer to the concept as an intention, because it reaches out to the extramental things. This is also why the word, if you want to be more precise, speak more precisely, is perhaps better described as a quasi-terminus. It terminates the interior act, the operation of understanding, but it finally does so by serving as a kind of medium through which the things outside the mind are manifested or signified. Thus, the interior word is necessary to manifest to oneself the things outside the mind. Of course, the word or concept is also necessary to manifest these same things to another. As we already noted, a vocal word only signifies something outside the mind through the medium of the interior word. Since the interior word not only signifies but truly manifests exterior things, one can manifest the truth to another and lead him to know something that was previously unknown. Okay, finally, the fifth feature of word. Word is a name for the architect's pattern or exemplar. An interior word or concept can also be operative in the making of external things. Before an architect 
directs the construction of a house, he first conceives the design of the house, the plan. The artist, according to St. Thomas, must have a preconceived plan to direct his production. Indeed, the first phase in the the architect's design of a building is the conceptual design. It's kind of a term I think architects use, but in a way, it's capturing the idea in St. Thomas. It comes before any detailed plans or blueprints that are on paper are drawn up. Maybe there are watercolors, but it's sort of trying to think through, like, what do we want this building to have? What are the features? How might it look? It's, I think, also where we're most likely to recognize that the mind is productive or creative. I mean, it's where the creativity of the architect is. Okay, so let me sum up these five features. So, so far we have considered the interior word in man in order to better understand the divine word. We have seen that the interior word or immaterial logos in the soul is more properly said to be a word than the vocal word or the imagined vocal word, the the imagined sound. You know, even when you kind of read quietly to yourself, you're often kind of hearing it in your imagination. The interior word is expressed by the mind through its imminent operation, an operation that remains in the agent and is necessarily related to the source or principle that speaks or utters the word. We can sort of talk that way. If if we're expressing a word, then in a way we're speaking or uttering a word, but an immaterial speaking, an immaterial uttering. Since word names what the intellect forms according to a perfect contemplation of the truth, the interior word names a perfection which, when sufficiently refined, can be properly predicated of God. That's the true word. It completes the act of understanding by representing or manifesting the thing understood. That was the fourth feature. And then lastly, the word can also name the pattern or plan produced by the architect, by the architect of a thing to be made. So this is part three of five parts. No, sorry, this is part three of the last part. So, <laughs> so part three is when we're, this is kind of where the payoff is, is going to be. So what the name word reveals about the sun. So let's turn to the prologue itself. How shall we approach this text? Let us begin with things that are more obvious or manifest. The word is obviously a name for the sun, which is evident from some of the later lines of the prologue, such as verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. We have beheld his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. So the the Word is also the Son. Beyond that, though, beyond the fact that the Word is a name for the Son, the opening line of the prologue also very, very clearly reveals the basic Trinitarian doctrine that the Son is both distinct from the Father and shares his very same nature that the word was, quote, with God, shows the the distinction between the Father and the Son. That the word word was God 
testifies that the Son is not a creature, but true God. Now here I'm going to sort of turn to the five features I outlined in the previous part and sort of show how they reveal something about the eternal word. So first, interiority of the word. Understanding the divine word as an interior word, as word in the most proper sense, guards against the mistake of seeing divine procession as something odd extra, as something going out and terminating in a creature. This mistake, seniors should recognize this from the beginning of this year, this mistake leads inevitably to either the Arian or the Sabellian heresy. Arius held that the Son proceeded from the Father as his primary creature. He admitted a distinction between the Father and the Son, but denied their unity of nature. Sibelius held the opposite view. He admitted their unity of nature, but denied the real distinction between the Father and Son. Now, understanding the procession revealed in Scripture as an interior procession, a procession within God himself, is the only way to avoid denying either the unity or the distinction revealed in the prologue. So the interior, interiority of the word in God conveys the unity of the divine nature and is presupposed to everything else we will consider about, about the word. Second feature. So interior word is produced or expressed. Understanding the second feature we consider, that a word is produced or brought forth from an intellect, helps, to manifest, helps us to manifest the real distinction between the word and the father. Also, considering how the interior word is produced in the human soul can help manifest divine generation to us more fully. So you can speak in more generic terms, procession, but it also helps to see that procession here is a generation. Defining generation, St. Thomas proposes that generation is the coming forth from a conjoined living principle according to a likeness in the same specific nature. Now, Thomas knows there's a, a broader notion of generation that's going to have to do with matter and coming to be and passing away. But he, he, said, he refines a more distilled notion of generation that won't be limited to material generation. Still, that was an odd phrase, and you might be wondering, what's meant, for instance, by the phrase, from a conjoined living principle? All I think he means by that is, generated from the very substance of the generator. It's not something operated on from without. Now, the operation of the intellect is a vital operation, an operation proper to living things. Indeed, it is the highest living operation. You know, we'll see that at the end of the Dhyanama. That's, you're ascending. You, know, you start with Nutrition, vegetation, move to sensation. Maybe I haven't started that yet. But, and then you'll end with the intellect because you're ascending to higher operations. So it's a vital operation. So since the word expressed or bought, brought forth in the inner recesses of the mind completes the intellect's vital operation as its product, or maybe better, fruit, it is a kind of offspring of the mind sharing in its very life, unlike, say, an external product of the mind, like a house or some other artifact. 
Notice that in English and in Latin, we call the expression of the interior word in our minds a conception, tacitly recognizing that it bears a likeness to biological generation. This is because bringing forth a concept in the mind is like conception and that the thing conceived is brought forth from within and shares the life of the parent. The conception of the word in the interior of the mind is akin to conception within the womb. Indeed, in one of the Psalms, David speaks of the Son of God as, quote, from the womb before the day star. That latter qualification is important because you might be thinking, well, maybe he's talking about the incarnate Son, but no, it's before the day star, before the heavens. Now, even though the Greek word for mental conception is not the same as the Greek word for biological conception, the likeness between the two is the basis for Socrates describing his art of questioning as akin to a midwife helping his interlocutors manifest or bring to light the things they conceive in their mind. That's from Plato's Theotetus. We used to read that in the program when I was a student, but we don't anymore, but you should read it at some point. You have your whole lives ahead of you, so... There are many dialogues you should read that you won't read in the program. So these considerations of the expression of the interior word help us to understand how the divine word proceeds from the Father as a living likeness of the Father, distinct from the Father by a relation of origin. But in order to see that the word is a a subsisting person, sharing the very same nature with the Father, we will need to consider the third feature of the interior word, that is, that a word is the perfect expression of what the intellect knows. So word as perfect expression of the Father. Remembering that the interior word in the truest sense must be a perfect and complete expression of what is known will help us see why the word is the true offspring of the Father. As I have already indicated, there is nothing in the name word that signifies that it comes forth from an intellect that moves from potency to act. And therefore, a word can be predicated of God as a proper name, that is, a non-metaphorical name. In God, there is no movement from potency to act. So a divine word must always be in act and would have to come forth from God fully formed from all eternity. Unlike the interior word in the human soul that is usually formed or expressed over time by means of a process of thinking, cogitatio, that advances from potency to act. Now there are two other points worth noting about the perfection of the divine word that bring us closer to an understanding of divine generation. First, Because God knows all things in one simple act of understanding, everything contained in the knowledge of the Father is expressed in a single divine word. Unlike us, we must form many words through which we express separately all that we know. Consequently, the divine word is the most perfect word. 
which is why John refers to the Son as the Word, rather than, say, the Word of God. The, the phrase or the, the description, the Word, signifies the supereminence of the divine Word. As St. Thomas puts it, quote, there is one absolute word by participating in which all persons having a word are called speakers, end quote. The divine word is unique then insofar as it expresses everything in the Father and is therefore a perfect likeness of him. This is why the word is, as wisdom has it, quote, a reflection of eternal light, a spotless mirror of the working of God and an image of his goodness. Moreover, insofar as the Son can be said to be an image of his Father, the Word can also be said to be a Son. Now, the divine Word is also perfect in another way. The Word, like every divine perfection, is identical to the divine essence and subsists in the divine nature unlike our words, which are mere qualities or accidents of our soul. Since the word comes forth as a likeness of the Father and shares the very same nature, not only specifically, but numerically the same, he is therefore a true son. And since there is only one divine word, he is not only the son, or, sorry, and since there is only one divine word, he is not only a son, but the only begotten Son from the Father. John 1.14. A more perfect likeness of his Father than any human son is a likeness. This is why St. Paul says, quote, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom all paternity in heaven and earth is named. End quote. Last feature of the word, Sorry, not the last, the, the um, getting ahead of myself. The fourth feature of the word, the word manifests the Father. So the fourth feature, that a word manifests the knowledge in the mind of the knower, is applied to the word of God in two ways. First, the eternal word manifests the Father to himself, and second, the word manifests the Father to us. We can see this latter sense of manifesting near the end of the prologue. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. We have beheld his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. No one has ever seen God, the only Son who is in the bosom of the Father. He has made him known. So that's John 1.14 and 1.18. We see that word is a fitting name not only because the Son manifests the Father to himself, but because the word made flesh manifests the Father to us. Next, the word is the plan and exemplar of creation. Finally, let us consider briefly how the notion of the word helps illuminate the, thir the third verse of the prologue, which begins to speak about the word insofar as he relates to creatures. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. This text seems to be getting at the same thing mentioned in Genesis, that the world was made through some sort of divine speech or logos. But what exactly does that mean? 
One might take this to refer to the sun as some kind of instrumental agent cause. But that would undermine the divinity of either the Father or the Son. If the Father is the principal agent and the Son is instrument, that would undermine the equality of the Father and the Son and their unity of operation. Since the Father and the Son share the same nature, the same power, and the same operation, they act as one in creating the world. Jesus testifies to the unity of divine action later in the Gospel of John. Quote, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever he does, that the Son does likewise. This also echoes the phrase from the, from the Book of Wisdom where the Son is described as the spotless mirror of the working of God. How then should we understand the phrase through him all things were made. The fifth feature of the word, the word as plan or exemplar, is especially helpful in unpacking the meaning of the phrase because the word is the form or exemplar of all creation. As we already discussed, the word expresses everything contained in the wisdom of the Father, including the knowledge of creatures, which according to St. Thomas is both expressive and operatives. The knowledge of creatures not only is expressing what they are, it's an operative expression. The divine word is the plan in the mind of the divine architect. Now here is how St. Thomas puts it, so I have a little bit of a quote here. Quote, For whoever makes something, it is necessary that he preconceive it in his wisdom which is the form and pattern, ratio, of the thing made. As the form preconceived in the mind of the artisan is the pattern of the cabinet to be made. Thus God makes nothing except through the concept of his intellect, which is the eternally conceived wisdom, namely the word of God and the Son of God. Therefore, it is impossible that he should make anything except through the Son. Whence, St. Augustine says in the De Trinitate that the word is the art full of the living patterns of all things. Thus it is clear that everything which the Father makes, he makes through him. End quote. Now the notion of the word as divine exemplar also explains the passage in scripture where St. Paul says, quote, this is from Colossians, I put this one on the handout if you want it, but he says, he, the Son, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or authorities. All things were created through him. I'm going to stop the quote there, but... Now, St. Thomas explains, I mean, the image part, I think, is pretty clear. We've already seen why he's the image. But the other part of it is creating in him. So not only through him, but in him all things were created. That's kind of adding a little bit to the prologue, but it's in the spirit of the prologue. What does that mean, in him? St. Thomas explains this passage by appealing to the Platonists who posited the ideas 
and said that each thing came to be by participating in an idea, like the idea of man or some other species. I mean, it's a real question, you know, what things are their ideas of, but for the sake of argument, let's say the idea of man. Now, St. Thomas affirms that the basic principle that all things participate in an eternal, in an eternal exemplar, that's right, he's affirming that. But rather than there being many ideas or exemplar, there is only one exemplar, the Word of God. He uses the notion that is St. Thomas. St. Thomas uses the notion of participation, in other words, to explain why St. Paul says that all things are created in the Word as well as through the Word. So that's something he's, um, you know, more typically we see Aristotle, or sorry, St. Thomas, drawing on Aristotle, but there are key places where he's really drawing on the thought of Plato to help manifest something, and this is one of those places. So here's a quote um, I think puts it nicely, and I'm getting near the end. Um, so quote from St. Thomas here. For an artisan makes an artifact by making it participate in the form he has conceived within himself, enveloping it, so to say, with external matter. For we say that the artisan makes a house through the form of the thing which he has conceived within himself. This is the way that God is said to make all things in his wisdom, because the wisdom of God is related to his created works, just as the art of the builder is to the house he has made. Now this form and wisdom is the word, and therefore in him all things were founded Candita sunt. I think that's the same verb in the Aeneid, like found Rome by <laughs> plunging the sword. So in him all things were founded as in an exemplar. He spoke and they were made. Because in his eternal word, he created all things to be. End quote. So this is how all things are said to be founded or created in the eternal word. In time, his creatures are enveloped in external matter. But they already exist in a way, in the word as God's divine plan or exemplar. Let me conclude. The revelation of the Son as word in John's prologue is perhaps the single deepest and most profound revelation of the Trinity in the whole of Scripture. It clarifies and recapitulates what was foreshadowed in the Old Testament, here I'm going to quote from Hebrews. In many and various ways, God spoke of old to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. End quote. The revelation of the word gives us a privileged entry into an understanding of the Trinity, and it is and it is thus no surprise that it plays a pivotal role in St. Thomas's Trinitarian theology. As Thomas himself notes, quote, no mode of procession of any creature perfectly represents the divine generation. Hence, it is necessary to gather a similitude from many modes, so that what is lacking in one may in some way be supplied by another. Nevertheless, among them all, the procession of the word from the intellect re represents it 
more clearly and distinctly, end quote. St. Thomas's words also remind us of the ultimate poverty of our understanding. Whatever light is shed by the interior procession of the word, we must remain mindful that we do not comprehend the mystery, but at best only catch, uh, only catch a glimpse of the secret of the divine generation. As St. Paul says, now we see in a mirror dimly. Thank you.